this evening we will be <clears throat> looking at verses 8 through 11. But again, to set the context, I'm going to begin the reading in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men, and homosexuals and kidnappers, and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let us pray. Father, again we approach you through your word. And we take it into our hands and upon our lips reverently and with fear. As we heard even in the scripture reading this morning that not too many should become teachers, for as such we incur a stricter judgment. So Father, we ask that you would bless with your Holy Spirit both the preaching and the hearing of your word, that we would not do ill by it, but rather that we would handle it rightly and that we would give honor to you through your word, your revelation. We pray that you would build us up, that you would conform our thinking to your own, and that you would sanctify us through your word. For we ask this, Father, in the name of your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There are those um, in Christianity, um, particularly over the past hundred or so years within the, um, the camp that is, that is called now fundamentalism that maintain that uh, all of the Bible is equally easy to read and understand. Um, that is typically maintained by those who don't read their Bibles or who read their Bibles in an unthinking way. Uh, the fact of the matter is um, there are some difficult passages. Two Themes in the Bible, especially the New Testament, uh, entirely leaving out the book of Ezekiel, come on. Um, but in the New Testament, two passages or themes that I find to be particularly difficult are the book of Revelation and the teaching of Paul on the law. I also have found in the years that I have been a believer and been in the church and have read books and commentaries that these are also two areas of Scripture where we often find men making confident assertions, saying that they know exactly what the book of Revelation means and when it is all going to come to pass and how and who this person is and who that person is, but also 
more to our point in the passage tonight, those who make confident assertions regarding Paul's teaching on the law. But I think Peter gives us fair warning when he writes in his second epistle regarding the Apostle Paul that speaking of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort to their own destruction. Peter gives us fair warning, as if we would need it, that some of the things that Paul writes are not easy to understand. They are hard to understand. And he also warns us that these things can be distorted. They can be twisted. And I think that is what Paul is dealing with here, or Timothy rather, must deal with in Ephesus. Men who apparently from good intentions are nonetheless distorting their teaching of the law. And as I said, that is not an easy topic. Men have read through Paul's letters, have read what he has to say in Romans and Galatians, here in Timothy and in 1 Corinthians, regarding the law. And they have come away with vastly different views on what Paul teaches I believe we have here in verse 8 a summary, the briefest of summaries, that captivates the, or captures the idea of Paul's consideration of the law when he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There's an echo of Romans 7 here where Paul writes, so then the law is holy And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And he might have added there what he adds here if one uses it lawfully. Very important principle, I think. I don't know that it cuts to the chase. I don't know that it it just clears up everything Paul writes about the law. But I think it gives us a firm foundation upon which to stand. First of all, we acknowledge with Paul that the law is good. It is holy. It is righteous. He says in that same passage, it is spiritual. But then this caveat, if one uses it lawfully. Now that implies, of course, that one might use it unlawfully. And perhaps, and and I do believe that, that this is what was happening in the teaching at Ephesus, for which Paul left Timothy, urging men not to teach strange doctrines, not to be aspiring to be teachers of the law, though they did not understand either what they are saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. Confident assertions regarding the law have been a commonplace in the church. It's almost as if the church has adopted not so much papal infallibility, but pastoral infallibility. And like the Roman Catholic Church, where the popes infallibly say things different from other infallible popes, churches and doctrine within Christianity have confidently asserted things that are diametrically opposed to each other. Those of us who are hopefully in the middle can recognize that this cannot be so. In other words, we cannot say, on the one hand, that Christians have no relationship at all with the law. Many who say, we are not under law, but under grace. 
And with that confident assertion, they tell us that we have no standard of conduct at all to guide us in our Christian walk except love. That's it. We are to love. That is the gospel. That is the, the supreme attribute of God. Don't bring law into this. That's antinomianism. The against lawism. And that is one branch of modern Christianity. But, but under the same rubric that we are not under law but under grace, we find those who reject the law of God who reject the Old Testament as pertaining to only Israel and having no uh, impact or influence upon the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore, they substitute a man-made law, rules and regulations to govern the lives of Christians, where they are allowed to go, where they're not allowed to go, what they're allowed to eat or drink, their length of their hair, the various clothing they wear, and all of this, man-made laws will inevitably replace God's law whenever God's law is ignored and rejected. This is legalism. And we've seen its ugly head in our day, but I believe it's, it's been in the church since the beginning. These two ideas, the antinomianism of no standard whatsoever and the legalism of a man-made standard, although they seem so incredibly different from each other, and they are, they both stem from the same source, and that is the one who says God's law doesn't apply to us. We are under grace. We're either under grace to do what we want or we're under grace to do what the pastor tells us to do. Both of which are wrong. Both of which are, are really blasphemous. That God would remove the standard of His holiness from His people. That we should call ourselves the people of God and yet have no standard by which we are to live. Or that we should replace that standard with one of our own. As if we could come up with something better. So I think on the one hand we have to reject the, ex the extreme, reject the extreme that we are not under law, even though Paul says this, of course, we are not under law but under grace. We cannot interpret that to mean that the good and holy and righteous law does not pertain to us in any way. But there is another extreme, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Again, Paul in Romans. This is more in line with Reformed theology, as Reformed theologians have always recognized a place of God's law in the life of God's people, the church, but have not always agreed, and in fact rarely have agreed, as to what that place is and how to parse the law. For example, under this rubric, that, that the law is there and has an important place, we have the, the theological uh, attempt to divide the law between the moral and the ceremonial and the civil. I'm sure you've all heard that. But you'll find that as you, as you read and study that, not every theologian parses the law the same way. It's not always so clear that this particular law is, is ceremonial and not moral, or civil and not ceremonial. And so it's, it's not very clear as to how to parse the law and to apply it. And another 
uh, teaching that comes under this, this, uh, this rubric of, of wanting to keep the law as a part of our heritage, which for, I firmly believe it is. But in trying to apply that, we have the, the doctrine of reconstruction, Christian reconstruction, where there are those who are attempting to, to develop a, a, a theocracy, whereby Christians will either in their own cloister, or as I heard from, from someone after the service this morning in, in the state of Washington, or perhaps in the United States as a whole, create a theonomic community where all people are brought once again under the law of Moses. Now, that's a very popular view within Reformed theological families here in the United States. So I think we're presented with the reality that Paul's teaching of the law contains some things hard to understand and that it has not been easy or it has not been consistent within Christianity to come to a, a conclusion and an application of Paul's teaching of the law. I think he was more nuanced than we who have interpreted him. I think that he would say there's little room for confident assertions and great danger of distortions, great danger of twisting and misapplying. And so tonight I want to focus really on verse 8 and perhaps present some guiding principles for our thoughts, each individually, together as a body, as we go forward in Paul's letter to Timothy, but in all of our study of the New Testament, some guidelines. Because verse 8, as I said, I think gives us some really solid footing. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. I'll give you the bad before the good. If one may use the law lawfully, then one may use the law unlawfully. And so I'd like to present, and these are by no means confident assertions, and hopefully not at all distortions, three ways by which the law may be used unlawfully. This is not meant to be exhaustive, but simply I think from Paul's own words, also borrowing a few from Peter, we talk about the ways that the law may be used at any time and in any age unlawfully. The first is to attain either justification or sanctification through the works of the law. Now there's been a great deal of debate as to what that phrase means, the works of the law. The primary context where Paul uses that is in Galatians, where the issue was Gentiles being circumcised in order to be truly brought in to God's covenant people. And Paul opposes that. But I think we can make a case that the works of the law have to do with the outward obedience to the ordinances and commandments of God's law. And by that law, I think it encompasses the entirety of God's revelation, not just the Ten Commandments, but the fleshing out of those Ten Commandments throughout the books of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and also the teaching of the prophets who said to the law and to the testimony. That's the law about which Paul writes. 
And so if we attempt to attain our justification or our sanctification through the law, then we are using the law unlawfully. Paul writes since in Galatians, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That seems pretty summary right there. No flesh, that would include every single one of us, Jew and Gentile alike, will not be justified by the works of the law. But he goes on to chastise the Galatians. That's justification. But he says to them, you you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He said, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then he goes on to say, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? There's sanctification through the flesh. Are we now being perfected? Is it, is it a situation where, okay, we're, we're saved by faith, but we're sanctified by works? Have you ever heard that? That's a very common teaching. And all we need to do is to substitute obedience and observance of God's law, and we now have a justification by faith, sanctification by works. And Paul will have none of it. That is an unlawful use of the law. To attain either justification or sanctification. Another unlawful use is to burden others. Jesus chastised the Pharisees that they would lay burden upon burden upon the shoulders of men and not even use as much as their little finger to help bear the load. He said they would go miles and miles to make one proselyte and then turn him into twice the son of hell as they were themselves were. It's easy to lay law upon others. Peter, at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, says to his assembled apostles and elders, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the back or the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter recognized that they could not bear the law, They could not live under the law. We're told that he who would keep the law must keep every single part of it. He who breaks the slightest commandment is guilty of all. Laying a burden upon others. Paul asks the Galatians rhetorically and I'm sure with great exasperation why Do you submit yourselves to decrees? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Things, he says, that have the appearance of outward religion, but have no power against the flesh. Why do you submit? So this is a two-way street. It is unlawful for the leaders of a church to lay these burdens upon believers, but it is unlawful for the believers to accept the yoke. So, we must stand firm in the freedom by which Christ has made us free. And yet, again, not go to the extreme of saying that I have nothing to do with the law. I'm under grace. I can do what I want. Paul would have none of that either. The third way in which the law may be used unlawfully is to replace or supplement the blood of Jesus Christ. 
That is, I think, the most important, the most significant, unlawful use of the law. Paul writes of his brethren according to the flesh, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Now, again, there are those who say, okay, see, the law's ended. The law's over. Christ came and therefore no law. But that's not what the word end means. It doesn't mean end as in it is no more. It means end as in fulfill. End as in reaching the goal to which something was directed. The purpose for which the law was given is fully met and personified in Jesus Christ. In that way, He is the righteousness of God. He is the fulfillment of the law. The Judaizers that Paul went after in his letter to the Galatians, those for whom he said he wished they would mutilate even themselves, were trying to have Christian, Gentile Christians in that region of Asia Minor receive circumcision. And that word circumcision, we have to understand, was more than just the, the physical act, the, the medical procedure of removing the foreskin. It embodied the entirety of the Jewish culture. It meant becoming a Jew. And so what they were teaching was not so much this one little thing. I mean, what's the big deal? It was you must become a Jew first in order to be of the people of God. And Paul said, if you receive er, circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. If the Jews, of which he wrote in Romans 10, they simply did not accept Jesus Christ. Theirs was the law. The Pharisees were devoted to the Torah. The Galatians were in danger of adding or supplementing the blood of Jesus Christ with the law, both of which are equally unlawful. The one seeking to make their own righteousness failed to grasp and receive the righteousness of God. The other would make the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ of no benefit to themselves. Both very serious errors. Three ways that we can see the law used unlawfully to attain either justification or sanctification. To burden others or to replace or supplement the blood of Jesus Christ. But Paul treats this positively in the verse that we're looking at verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So let's close by looking at three ways in which the law may be used lawfully, in which the law may be appropriated to the life of a believer who is under grace profitably, the first is through the recognition and the condemnation of sin. Now Paul makes it very clear in the next passages, and these are often where a lot of preachers will focus. The immoral men and homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, unholy, profane, those who, who rail against their fathers and mothers, and that is actually a more literal rendering. The word does not mean kill. It means to dishonor. 
which encompasses the killing of parents, but you know, most of us don't kill our parents. I, even if you want to, you don't. Most of us, however, do violate the fifth commandment. Some do it as a habit. The law clearly highlights these sins, these acts of rebellion against God, and condemns them. Paul says the law is not made for a righteous man, and when we read that, we think, well, who is righteous? Well, we are righteous in Christ. And therefore, Paul can say, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, the law brings conviction, it brings condemnation of sin. And without that conviction and condemnation that comes through the law, we have no basis upon which to make confession. And we find ourselves over in 1 John, he who says he has no sin lies to himself. He calls God a liar, he deceives himself. But those of us who acknowledge our sin and confess our sin, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to forgive us. We have an advocate with the Father, and so the law becomes the standard by which we know ourselves to be in need of grace. The law gives us the recognition and the condemnation of sin. The law has no power to condemn the righteous man. The law of man can wrongfully kill a righteous man, but it cannot condemn him in truth because he is righteous. And the law of God cannot condemn a righteous man. It could not condemn Jesus Christ, and therefore death had no power over him because he was and is a righteous man. Yet it continues to convict even the believer of the sin that remains within him, that dwells in the flesh, Paul writes, I would not have known sin except for the law. If we remove the law from our minds, if we remove the law from our lives, then we have nothing by which to measure sin or sanctification. And again, what will happen at that point is the church will step in and it will give you a standard by which to measure. But that is blasphemy. That is setting up as the law of God what is rather the law of men. And Jesus himself condemned that in the Pharisees. Negating the law of God, you have created standards and ordinances of your own. A second way in which the law is lawfully used is that it is a guide to holiness. It is first a recognition and condemnation of sin, but it is not all negative. It's not all thou shalt not. There is a, a tremendous amount of thou shalt, that thou will do this. The, the holiness code in Leviticus, for example, teaches us how we ought to live one another as brethren in the community of faith. There's a great deal of positive in the law. We, we know so many who say that God is love and the only law that we need is love. Paul writes in Romans 13, For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And he says, and, and, and any other ordinance that there may be is all summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's not replacing the law with the law of love. 
the, the, the words that say you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your might. That is the summation of the first four commandments. And the law or the word that says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that is the summation of the rest. How we relate to God, how we relate to one another is fleshed out, pardon the pun or the play on words there, but it's fleshed out through the law. The law teaches us how to love the Lord our God by not having any other God before Him, by not using His name in vain, by honoring His day and keeping it holy. The law teaches us how to love one another by honoring our parents, by respecting the property and the persons of others, by not defiling others in sexual immorality, by not even wishing that we would have the things that others possess. We would not know what it means to love the Lord our God and to love one another if it weren't for the law. So on the one hand, we would not know sin apart from the law, but I would submit to you, we do not know love apart from the law. The law is not the burden that so many have made it to be. James writes that the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, this man shall be blessed in what he does. That's basically echoing Psalm 1. That if we would meditate upon the law and call it our delight, we will be as the tree planted by the streams of water, bringing forth our fruit in season, and nothing will stand against us. The law, it, it is holy, it is good, it is righteous, and it can be used lawfully. Finally, the third way in which that can be is corresponding to the third of the negatives, the law points and continues to point to Jesus Christ and His blood. The law has become, as Paul says, our tutor to lead us to Christ. And I think we often look at that as, as a once for, for all time and point in our life when we became believers. But you know what? Most of us Gentiles became believers without any knowledge of the law at all. We were Gentiles whose only law, Paul writes in Romans 2, was our conscience, which alternately convicted or acquitted us. But we did not know the law of God. We were without God and without hope in the world. We were, we were Gentiles, uncircumcised of heart and of mind. So how is it that the law became our tutor? Or how is it, I should ask, has it ceased to be our tutor? When we read the law, in each of its myriad aspects, each of its minute ordinances, it constantly lays before our eyes the holiness of God, the sinfulness of our heart, and the all-sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the law may be used lawfully as a guide to holiness. When we meditate upon the law, we are convicted of our sin. We're convicted of the holiness of God, which will not even look upon sin. And we are convinced 
of the soul sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That is the good and lawful use of the law. Let us pray. Father, we would use your law lawfully. And so we ask that in this area of your teaching, the teaching of the Apostle Paul, where so many have disagreed and so many have taken divergent paths, that you would hold us fast to the principle that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And that in all our meditations we might desire not to be dogmatic, not to make confident assertions, but rather that we might be guarded from distorting your law, from leading either ourselves or anyone astray on account of your law, and that ultimately we would be found to be those who valued and honored your law and used it lawfully. For your glory and for our good, and for the building up of your church, for which Jesus shed his blood. We ask that you would do these things by the influence and indwelling of your Holy Spirit and through the revelation of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand this evening for the benediction from 2 Peter, where Peter gives us this exhortation that we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.